0: But uh, James, I got to listen to the message, did a wonderful job uh, last week expositing the idea of though our outward self is wasting away, yet our inner self is being renewed day by day. And that whole process of what the Holy Spirit does for us and that kind of stuff. By the way, you can pray for them this week. They are uh, on vacation in Montana and uh, they'll be coming back, so pray that they have a good time. Uh, But what James was talking about, what... Paul writes about is that this is the spirit of faith, right? And faith becomes this really important um, topic in the New Testament. It says, Knowing he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. What you find in this section of scripture is there's just all kinds of these massive eternal promises. Uh, to us as believers. So when we think of the Corinthian church then, right, that's, we're in, in that series, uh, The Unveiled Life, uh, what was causing them to lose heart, right? Paul wasn't just writing into a vacuum, there was something that was going on there, and certainly it was what James was detailing last week. The outer self was decaying, you know, they were running into the problems of life. But as with all things in life, there was another level. And the question is, well, what was that level? And to understand, we'd have to understand the mentality of the early church. The early church, uh, one of the firm beliefs that they had was that Jesus was coming back in their lifetime. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Right? We don't have time to cover it all this morning, but uh, what was causing them to lose heart? Quite simple. Quite simple some of them had died right there's nothing quite like uh i was talking to the family yesterday so it's one thing to bury a dad it's another thing to bury a sister right that's a tough deal and uh, brian was saying you know i was doing fine till i saw the casket lowered in the ground and then i just lost it there's something about that 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 you tend to lose heart and uh Paul is addressing in both the books of the Thessalonians and the Corinthians, he's addressing this issue because uh, people people they loved were dying. And one of the big questions in their church is, what happens to those who die before Jesus returns? Because we're pretty sure he's coming back soon and ready and we're going to all get caught up with them, but they died. They didn't have a category for that. Uh, of course, we've had 2,000 years to practice dying, so we're a little bit versed in that. We're not so aware of that conflict, but in the early church, that was a big deal. You're waiting for Jesus, and the person next to you dies, and you're like, oh my gosh, now what? And so Paul is addressing these topics directly. and We're going to look at that this morning as we wrap this series up this morning. So would you join me in prayer? Let's pray and, and seek the Lord. Father, as we we come into this this morning this is a fantastic chapter it's a a chapter that uh has captivated me for a lot of years and i just pray this morning that as i speak people will connect with their journey your voice what you've told them over the years and that there will be a resonance here that uh, you will point things out or maybe underline or highlight something that will be significant as we gather uh, to honor you. And we seek you for that in your name. Amen. All right. Okay, so we're going to go old school this morning. Um, When I started, uh, we didn't have all these fancy gear, and we didn't have all the fancy overheads and stuff. It was just Steve getting up and going off on a Bible passage. So I thought, well, it's my last two Sundays. Let's go out like the way I came in. All right, so I'm just going to go... And uh, one of the things, I actually, this is kind of cool, I was going through my, uh, so I cleaned out my office this week, right? And if you've gone up there, it's very empty, and, uh, which is kind of weird on top of all the other stuff. But going through my files, I found this file, and in the file is uh, a sermon, and it is called Back to Basics, it's on 2 Corinthians. <laughs> Guess what the date is? 1988. I went, wow, and I read it, and I went, darn, I'm saying the same thing 35 years later. What in the world? <laughs> kind of cracked me up. At least I'm consistent. That's good. But uh, I found that. I just read that. I was like, wow, that was amazing to me. But, um, so here we go. No slides full. Chapter 2 Corinthians 5. Open up your Bibles. If not else, listen to me. Open up your phones. It reads like this, verse 1. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed. So Paul here is using the analogy of a tent for your body. Right? That would be familiar in the East because a lot of people lived in tents, and so they would understand this analogy. Paul is saying, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. When it talks about destroyed here, It's talking about our bodies being torn down. I don't know if you watched the floods in Yellowstone this last week, but did you see the the videos of the houses being swept in the river and just crumbled to pieces? That would be a good picture of your house being torn down. Uh, We did Julie's memorial service yesterday, and she battled colon cancer for seven years, and her body literally got torn down. And if you've had loved ones in that process, you know what that feels like, you know what it looks like, the body gets destroyed. And Paul says, though the body gets destroyed, we have a house in heaven. Notice, it's a tent down here, it's a house in heaven. Right? Paul says, we have a house in heaven that's eternal. And he spends a great deal of time on this. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he spends that entire chapter talking about the resurrection body and what that will be like and what that's going to, to uh, look like. And so this is something that he's already talked to him about, and James was highlighting this last week, that the renewal of the inner man, what the Holy Spirit does to continue to keep encouraging us and to keep us moving forward. And we're going to see Paul highlight this later in this chapter. And what Paul is saying is that the new man, the new house, has a glory beyond comparison. That these light and momentary afflictions, that's what he calls them, that we go through, which are neither light nor momentary, They are in comparison to eternity, but uh, in the present, they feel like they're going to last forever. He says these light, momentary afflictions are nothing to be in comparison to what God's going to do with the new house in the future. Verse 2 For in this tent we groan. If you're over 40, I don't need to explain that verse to you. Right? In this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed. By putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened. Uh, This naked thing is something we understand. There's no place you can lose your dignity faster than a hospital, right? You walk in with your clothes on, they hand you a little thing, say, Slip your clothes off, put this on. And even if you tie it, you kind of go, Man, it's kind of breezy back here, right? It's, it's like, and then things flop and fly and every, the whole neighborhood is watching and you're like, wow, you know? And uh, it, it can be quite embarrassing when you go to a hospital. And those of you have been there know what I'm talking about. And, um, and that's the idea behind the phrase being found naked. It's a natural knee-jerk reaction. And then he says, if indeed by putting on, we not be found naked, but while we're still in this tent, we groan or being burdened. Uh, I've told the story before, but it fits in this context. Rich Logenberg, a wonderful friend back in the North Shore days, one time we were at men's retreat, at, out at Lake Retreat, and he was talking to me, and he looked at me and he said, Steve, you know, it takes great courage to become old. And I laughed, because at that point I was like 26 and bulletproof, and you know, and I just took off, and I, I took about like 10 or 15 steps. And then I re- remembered that Rich had fought on Omaha Beach. And I went... Why would a guy who fought on Omaha Beach tell me that? That doesn't make any sense. He knows Band of Brothers and you know that kind of stuff. He did that. He knows what courage is. Why would he say that to me? So I turned around, wheeled, wheeled back, went next to him. He was talking to somebody else. And he got done. He turned and he looked at me and he says, oh, you came back. I said, yep. And he said, well, why did you come back? I said, because I was too young and stupid Uh, when you were trying to tell me something and I took about 10 steps and realized you were actually trying to say something significant and I didn't last long enough to figure out what it was so I came back to figure out what it was you were trying to tell me. And he says, well Steve, you know when you're your age everything's an ad. He says, you know, you graduate from high school, you graduate from college, you get a new car, you get a new job, your career, you're moving on, you get married, you get kids, you get, you know, you get a wife, you get kids, you get vacations, you got adventures. He says, everything's an ad, everything's a good. He said, but when you get my age, everything becomes a takeaway. He says, first you notice it when you start losing your hair. That happened early for me. Then he says, then you, you know, your, your teeth, and then your ears, your hearing, and stuff like that. But he says, then you start losing friends. And he says, and then you start losing family members. He says, Steve, I've buried two sons. That's not the way it was supposed to be. They were supposed to bury me. I wasn't supposed to bury them. He said, I never had that in my catalog for my vision for my life that I would have to bury my children. And he says, now Ginny and I are getting fragile. And as we are going on, you know, who's going to go first and who takes care of who, and there's, there's a lot of fears. There's a lot of things I never imagined that I would have to face getting older. And he says, Steve, it takes every bit as much faith to believe that God's in this part of the journey as he was in the beginning part of the journey. And he was talking about having faith for the second half. And I really think that that is a great word for us is that you have to believe God's in the second half of the journey every bit as much as the first half, even though there are takeaways in the second half. Paul's again encouraging them not to lose heart. Rich was encouraging me to brace up so when those things came, I wouldn't lose heart. Even though people that they loved were dying. Verse 4, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is, in one of the greatest phrases in the Bible, what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. The idea there, when we think of dying, we think of being swallowed up by death. That's the end of it. Death controls it. Paul's saying, no, when we die, if you are in Christ, you are swallowed up by life. The idea here is that you are then permanently clothed in other words you don't have to change anymore you're permanently clothed with iridescent clothes that will last for eternity and it's one of the the greatest faith promises that can be found in the bible verse five he who's prepared us for this very thing is god who has given us his spirit as a guarantee this is what's called a signature imprint uh, you might not be aware of what that is, but uh, you've seen, for example, uh, the Kentucky Derby, right? You see those horses, and you ever watch when they film them that the, the, the trainer will come out of the paddock and the horse just follows them, right? There's no rope, they're not, the trainer walks and the horse just follows right behind him, and it's like, wow, well, how do they train those horses to do that? Well, how they train the horses to do that is when the mare is about to give birth to that, that colt, They take the mother and keep the mother's breath away and when the, the trainer cups his hand and he breathes on the colt. And that imprints that colt with that breath, that fragrance. And so that colt thinks that that trainer is his mother. And so that horse will follow that trainer around for the rest of his life because he's been imprinted. Well, here we're not being imprinted from a trainer. We're being imprinted by the Holy Spirit. In other words, when we come to Christ, God breathes on us. The breath of Christ comes into our life. And there is a fragrance. It's called the fragrance of heaven. And it's the fragrance of the Holy Spirit. And you know that fragrance. That fragrance comes to you at different times in your life, and you know that God's calling out to you or calling you back or calling you away for something or calling you to something. You know that fragrance. You know that breath. Many, many times when people hear the Lord's speaking and say, Steve, I knew that voice. I know that voice. What are they talking about? They're talking about the Holy Spirit. And so Paul here is saying that we have been given the Spirit as a guarantee. By the way, God's guarantees actually perform. All right, God does not renege on His guarantees. Hebrews says this, that this guarantee is a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. In other words, it holds us steady in the midst of storms. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. And this is what it means to have eyes of faith. We have to approach this by faith. Where is Jesus in this? Where is he telling me to go? You have to have faith. Faith is what prepares us. And so it isn't just going along and same old, same old. It's, God, what is your... um, purpose for me what is your will for me whoever comes to God must believe again Hebrews says that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him those who seek him seek him by faith and so it's a pursuit it's a pursuit of the great king verse 6 and so we are always of good courage we know that while we're at home in the body we are away from the Lord for we walk by faith not by sight there's that phrase again while we're down here, we need to have faith and we need to have courage. What Richard's trying to tell me is, Steve, there's some things coming along that I know that you don't know because you're 26 at the time and I'm 60-something. I forget where it was. He's in the mid-60s somewhere. He says, there's things I've learned that you don't know about yet. And you should listen to me because the things that I've encountered are coming your way. You just don't know it. And you need to be ready for those things. And you need to be on guard for those things so that you don't vary or differ from your faith. Because he says it knocks a lot of people out. Hebrews again, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For it, for by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was made out of things that are In In other words, everything we see was created by something invisible. His name happens to be God. Verse 8, yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. Good courage. What's good courage? Good courage, faith, is to believe what God has told you. Again, the best way to do that is to read through the Bible. So many people never read through it. They never look at what's in there for themselves. I'm in Ezekiel right now, just getting blown away again. I've read that book well over 40 times. I'm like finding things I never saw. Probably because I'm at a place in life where I've never been before, right? I never resigned from being a head pastor before. It's kind of new territory, right? So I'm looking at it with different eyes and you see different things. And so all of us have to have those eyes of faith and have courage for what the next steps are, to believe what God told us. Paul says it's better to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Uh, We may feel bad for Bob and we may feel bad for Julie, but we know totally where they are and who they're with. Okay? And they are probably looking down going, hey, ain't so bad up here, <laughs> right? They got it really, really good, but we only see the lost side. We don't see the gain side. That will be revealed when it comes our turn. Bob Self, on, they had a big picture of him up on the screen, and underneath his picture were the words, let's go. Hey, if you remember that phrase, that was the phrase made famous by Todd Beamer, right? A 9-11 on the airline when they overtook the airline that was going to crash Uh, into the White House, and they, uh, they, they took the plane and kept it from crashing in the White House, right? And his words as he left the phone is, let's roll. Bob was saying that, and where was he saying that? He was saying that on his deathbed. As Kevin and Rachel and them were sitting around there, he looked over and he said, let's go. What was he saying? It's time to go. I'm full of faith. I'm ready. I've walked the life. Let's go. He wasn't afraid to go to the other side of the curtain. He wasn't afraid to go to the other side of the veil. He knew his Lord. He knew it was time to go. He says, let's roll this thing. Let's get it going. That is great faith. And that is the kind, that's the way Christians should finish. Bob and Lynn and Julie died beautifully. Beautifully. They died with great faith and with great courage, and we need to do the same. And what's the goal in this phrase? To please him. That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but they should live to please the Lord, to live in a way that's pleasing to him. There will be no greater epitaph on anybody's tombstone than the Lord saying and looking to you when you show up, well done, good and faithful servant, come into my rest. Can you imagine the Lord Jesus, the resurrected Lord Jesus, looking at you and saying, well done, well done, come into my rest. That will be the most amazing, that's really the only acclamation we actually need when you think about it. Why is this so important? Well, the part that I just read to us, the verses I just read to us, is usually what's read at a funeral, right? And they stop there. It's the verses after it that nobody really wants to include in a funeral because it's rather difficult. Why should we live in a manner pleasing to Him? Well, look with me at verse 10. Here's kind of the uh, culmination point of Paul's thinking. as He says this, For we must all, why should we live, live in a manner pleasing to Him? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil oops, right? Everybody will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and they will be accountable for everything that they've done, verbal, nonverbal, intentional, non-intentional, good or evil. And here is where having a foundation in Christ is absolutely critical. Both believer and non-believer will face the last judgment. The believer will have Christ as a foundation. The non-believer won't. Hebrews tells us that it's appointed once for man to die and then comes the judgment. The believer will have that foundation in Christ. The non-believer won't and everybody's work is going to get tested by fire. For those without the foundation of Christ, it's an eternal fire. It's a place called hell. And many, many try to make hell more palatable by saying that fire, the fire is allegorical. I do not see how that makes things better. Okay, If fire is merely an analogy, then that means the reality is even worse. 1 Corinthians 3, earlier in the first book of Corinthians, tells us that for believers, the foundation is Christ and that our works will go through the fire as well. And Paul uses the analogy of gold, silver, and precious stones, and then wood, hay, and straw. Hey, if you put gold, silver, and precious stones through fire, what happens to them? They get refined, they get purified, right? If you put wood, hay, and straw through fire, what do you get? Chaff. Right? You ever seen wood, hay, or straw burn? Right? Gone. And Paul's saying that our works will be tested by fire and what is noble, what is good, what was done for the kingdom will remain as gold, silver, and precious stone and what was carnal and of the flesh and of sin will disappear and burn up like wood, hay, and straw. And Paul says that each will be rewarded for what they've done in faith for Christ. And Paul also says that some will get through as if by fire. That means you get into heaven with your skivvies on, right? Maybe. Maybe. That's a scary picture. That's why the fear of the Lord is so important. We can be afraid of people and people's opinions and all that kind of stuff, but the Bible says the thing we should be most afraid of is the fear of the Lord, the respect of the Lord, the honor due the Lord, gratefulness to the Lord. Therefore, where did I get that from? Look at verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Okay, so you always have to ask, what is the therefore, therefore? The therefore is therefore because of the judgment. Because of this knowledge of the coming judgment, we should, knowing the fear of the Lord, persuade others. Paul is exhorting everyone to give their life to Christ and he's using the fear of the Lord as a tool for that. Psalm 90 uh, epitomizes this, verses 9 through 11, it says this, for all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. Have you ever been at a deathbed? Have you ever watched somebody pass? It's, with, it's like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. We are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger? or your wrath according to the fear that is due you. Powerful statements. He is the great and awesome God right now, 2022, just like he was when Jesus walked this planet. He's not gotten tired, he's not gotten old, he's not gotten senile, he's not gotten frail. He's not intimidated. He's not surprised by the culture. He's not any of those things. He is the great and awesome God with whom we have to do. He is the creator, the maker of heaven and earth. That's a title used over and over throughout scripture. He is the Lord of hosts. We don't even know what the meaning of that all is. And in all of Paul's arguments here is to be reconciled to him before the judgment day. Continuing in verse 11, look at verse 11. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it's known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer to those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it is for you. Again, Paul is appealing to their consciences. Again, remember, do you remember when I was among you? Do you remember how we acted? Do you remember what we taught? Do you remember what we said? Follow our example. He wasn't boasting, but rather he was giving them some ammo to use uh, when they had to deal with those who were big on outward appearance and saying they had a greater gospel than the one that Paul had given them. And what Paul is saying, it's not about appearance. It's not about a veiled life where you have all these things outwardly that you demonstrate. He says it's really about the heart. And who really cares for you? Does the world really care for you? I remember uh, back in my days before Jesus, I had tons of friends. And they were my posse and they were my tribe. And I thought, man, we are tight, right? And when I came to Christ, guess what? (laughs) Gone. All these people that I thought were tight that I was going to do life with, just gone. Not only were they gone, but they were antagonistic. They were angry that I'd given my life to Christ because I was wrecking the party. And they they turned on me. And some of you may have had the same sort of situations, whether it's junior high or high school or college, or you know, you had best friends, and you thought, well, we'll be there for life, and boom, they're gone. You know, who's really there for you? And Paul is saying, the Bible's saying, Jesus is always there. That's who you should fear the opinion of the most because he's the one who's not going to leave you or ever forsake you. Paul was saying, hey, look, I was among you like a mother who nurses his child, nurses her child, getting our culture all mixed up here, right? I was like a mother among you. He said, I took care of you. Don't you remember that? He says, look, if we're acting crazy, it's for God. But if if we're in our right minds, it's for you. Look at verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who might live, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. For the love of Christ controls us. That's what Paul was saying. Question this morning, does the love of Christ control us? And to what degree and what level? Does the love of Christ control us? You know, we have a lot of loves in life. And the question is, who or what is at the top of your list? And Paul is simply arguing that Jesus should be at the top of the list. There can be other loves, but you've got to keep the order straight. Jesus should be at the top, and then those fall under. right? Not, don't reverse and get the cart in front of the horse. It doesn't work that way. What he's saying is, we owe him, Jesus, a tremendous debt of love. For what he has done for us. It's right here in these verses that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. See, here's the point it wasn't Jesus who, we're not doing Jesus a favor, it's Jesus who's doing us a favor. And you've got to keep that order right. I remember I, when I first moved out to Northwest uh, and moved to North Shore, Pat and Maryland would remember this very clearly. And I, was, uh, at, I lived with the Moisson family, Doug and Joanne, fabulous family, Rick and Randy and Ron, their sons. And I became an adopted son. And, um, we were at, the, I lived with them at their house and years went by and uh, Doug was uh, vice president of the Bon Marche for marketing and uh, great, great guy, great family. And Uh, he became ill. He had MS and he was in the hospital and he was dying. And so I got to the hospital and um, Joanne and and Ron were there and you could tell they're just exhausted out of their gourds. They'd been there for like three days straight. And I said, hey guys, I said, look, why don't you go home? Why don't you get something to eat? Why don't you go take a shower and take a nap and just rest up? I'll stay here. I got nowhere to go. I got nothing to do. I will stay with Doug till you get back. And they kind of looked at me. I said, no, I'm serious. Why don't you go? And they said, really? I said, yeah. They said, oh, thanks. And so they went home. And so I sat. I would brought a couple books, and I'm just sitting by the bed reading and uh, just watching if Doug was going to come to her or not. And I was talking to him just like he was there. And the nurse came in, and she said to me, you know, he is really lucky to have a friend like you. I said, oh no, you don't understand. It's the other way around. I still get choked up. (laughs) I'm lucky to have a friend like him. And she said, you know, can I say something? We're not supposed to say this. She said, but we can tell. She said, we watch people come through here all the time. And she said, there's people like him and then there's people with nobody. And we watch them die all alone, and there's no hope, and there's no joy, and there's no faith. And then there's people like him. And we can tell the difference. Powerful moment. Thank you, Doug and Joanne. Verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Paul in this section is going to highlight what could simply be labeled the supremacy of Christ. Although Jesus was once in human form, fully God and fully man, he is now the resurrected Christ. And because of his resurrection, he's now become the author of our salvation. And there's no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. That is the clear, clear testimony of the Bible, which leads us to next to one of the greatest statements in all of the New Testament. And this is used, you know, these verses, you've, you've repeated them before. Verse 17, therefore, what? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Powerful, right? Change of life. Uh, many of us have experienced that. For some of us, it was more explosive than others. It doesn't matter if it was quiet or loud. It just matters that it happened. That there came a place where the old is gone and the new has come. Behold, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. They are made new. And that is the promise Of the Bible, that's the promise of eternal life. That's why we gather together. When you die and your tent is torn down, you won't be swallowed up by death. You will be swallowed up by life. And as Paul lays out in that great resurrection chapter in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Oh, death, where is your victory? No, death, where is your sting? It stings on this side of the veil because we can't see the other side. Once you're on the other side, you go, Hey, no big deal. He had it the whole way. I wish I would have trusted better, okay? We don't have to wait to trust better. We can trust better now. The new is eternal life. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee, and this life is by faith. And verse 18 says this, and all of this comes from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. That's a fascinating term, reconciled, right? I don't know if you've ever looked into it or or, uh, explored a little bit, but the term has uh, relational implications, legal implication, and financial implications. All of us are old enough in this room to have had a relationship kind of go kaput, right? Bust, go bad. And it's no longer what it used to be. And we long for that to get reconciled, right? For a way back to get that reconciled. Uh, many of us might have had legal troubles, right? If someone goes to prison, we say their debt to society has been paid. What are we saying? It's been reconciled. The wrong's been reconciled. It's been covered. Uh, financially, the books need to be reconciled, right? They have to add up. They, they have to match. And if they don't, you've got a problem, particularly if it's the IRS looking at the books, Right, So there's those three different ways you can look at it. Note that it is not only the ministry of Jesus, but us who are in Christ, who've been given the same ministry of reconciliation. What is God doing? What he's doing is in Christ or through Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's trespasses against them. It is literally the greatest offer in the universe. I will trade places with you. Come under the umbrella, come under the protection, come under the covering of Jesus, and God will reconcile the accounts. Your sin is not held against you. And so you have two options. You can take this offer, or you can decide, no, I'll reconcile the books on my own. What you're saying is I'll stand in front of the living God. I'm, more, I'm convinced enough of my argument and my, my grasp of it and the rights I have in it that I will be able to tell the eternal God that I am allowed into heaven because of my merits. Or you can say, you know what? I think I'll take the offer because I know there's places in my life where I've blown it. I think I'll take that deal. And Paul is encouraging us to take that deal. And once you've been reconciled, guess what? You get to help others get reconciled the same way you did. You get to tell them how it works. You get to share with them. Verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. We are his apostolos. Remember James used that term, right? Apostolos, the sent ones. An ambassador Represents the interest and agenda of the nation they represent. Who do we represent? We represent the kingdom of God. We represent the kingdom of Jesus. And Paul's imploring, begging that we be reconciled. And what's behind that strong push? Well, if something needs to be reconciled, it means that something was broken. Something was out of balance. Right? Paul's talking about something here. He's trying to bring this up. And... Uh, the old way of saying this, uh, speaking as ambassador, be reconciled, the old way was saying, get right with God. Remember that phrase, get right with God? Many of us remember that. Uh, notice it's on God terms, not our terms. It has to be in and through Jesus that we have to be reconciled. And what is this about? This is about the authority issue. This is about the control issue. This is about that battle that we have over control Let me say it one more time. In America, control is our drug of choice. Now, why would Paul write that? Well, because Paul himself knew what it was to be out of alignment with God. Paul knew what it was to have a battle over control. If you've never read the book of Acts, please do so. Paul himself had to come under Jesus' authority. He had, to, he had to submit to the authority of Christ. And likewise for us, if we don't get the authority side figured out and if we don't get the control side figured out, the Christian life is going to be very difficult. We will find it hard to be reconciled to God. Right? There's a couple pictures that are valuable. You can go through the Christian life like this. Many of us have tried that. How well does it work? Or you can go through the Christian life like this. You can go through the Christian life like this. Or you can go through the Christian life like this. Somebody said, how is it in the transition? It said, keeping an open hand. Right? Keeping an open hand. It's the Lord's to do with what he wants to do. Paul knew what those battles were like. And this is where grace becomes a big deal. God granting the grace to submit. And yield to His grace. His amazing grace that allows us to be in a relationship with Him and to end the hostilities, to end the conflict, to end the fight. We can be reconciled to God. And notice that it is God and His grace that's taken the initiative. God stepped in that role long before we were ever around to bring things back into balance and into right standing relationally. How do I know that? Look at the last verse, verse 21 this will wrap up for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin that would be the lord jesus so that in him we might become the righteousness of our righteousness of god for our sake for my sake for your sake the initiating love of god put jesus on a cross for our sins not so we would become condemned but rather that we might become the righteousness of god He was going to turn us into something we weren't, something way better than what we really are. Right with God. You know, that's a cool phrase. Let me ask this morning, are you right with God this morning? Are you at peace with Him? Only you know that, right? And if not, why not take a minute and just confess and yield and submit to His amazing grace? Instead of this, why not this? He's the ultimate Father. We're celebrating Father's Day. He's the ultimate Father. Our Father who art in heaven. Nothing would bless his heart more on Father's Day than to see his children yield and resubmit to his authority and resubmit to his leadership. Let me give you a minute to do that. Would you just close your eyes? I don't know you're weak. I don't know what you've been through. I don't know what you've faced. I don't know what the challenges have been. I don't know where your faith is and I don't know where your doubts are. But I know somebody who does. I know somebody who's been watching you intimately. And the greatest picture we have of them is a father, a good father. Why don't you just take 30 seconds and make sure you're right with them? Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for these marvelous chapters. How Paul wrote this stuff, I have no idea. Unbelievable content. This is just one take, one swipe at it, Lord. Uh, So much more in there. And that's because there's so much more in you. Like Esther said, you can't be put in a box. All that's visible was created by that which is invisible. You are the God who created heaven and earth. And therefore, we submit to you this morning and ask that you would walk with us and help us walk in a, this coming week in a way that is pleasing to you. And if we've walked that way for a long time, may we keep going. And if we haven't, may we start this week. May we start this morning. We give that to you with hope and we give that to you in faith and ask this in your name. Amen.